And we are live with our 34, 34th episode of Absolute AppSec. I know you're laughing. I'm Ken Johnson uh, at CK Tricky on Twitter, and I'm joined by my co-host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I know it's been a couple weeks since we've been here. We'll get into that here later tonight. But, yeah, welcome back to the show, I guess. Uh, I'm going to sing our intro here. Da, da. No, never mind. That's no good. <clears throat> Still don't have an intro. Probably we never will have an intro. We'll see. We'll see if that changes. Um, we did have a guest scheduled for this evening, but she, due to uh, work plans or a uh, thing from work that popped up, which, like you know, happens, um, she wasn't able to make it. So it's just going to be Seth and I tonight kind of, kind of winging it honestly uh we've been like seth mentioned we're out we've been out for a couple weeks and uh we'll talk a bit about appsec usa and appsec day Mel- melbourne melbourne i learned it's melbourne that's how you're supposed to say it which i thought was really weird it's like not melbourne australia it's melbourne uh <clears throat> anyways <laughs> along with that fun factoid you'll learn more stuff tonight so um but yeah seth i think you wanted to start with a uh yeah, I'll, an I'll take over and, and do kind of an AppSec minute. Uh, one of the talks that I've been given for the last year has been about uh, security unit testing. And, um, and it, like, this is this has been on my mind for a while. As I, as I went through call, my college days, I actually did quite a bit of work on unit testing, like from a quality assurance perspective and identifying edge cases. Like I remember taking a couple of classes that that's all that it was about. And as I got into the security industry uh, and application security specifically, I've always wondered why we don't, like my, my, my favorite punchline is that security testers are just really bad QA testers um, because the, like, the level of effort that we put into security testing is very different from what a QA tester would do. Right? Even from just like a plan perspective, how they put together their payloads and everything. So as part of our AppSec Minute tonight, I wanted to talk a little bit about crafting security payloads for your security tests. So rather than approaching it from an exploit perspective, uh, when you are trying to integrate into a CICD pipeline, I recommend more of a you know, case-by-case approach uh, on finding flaws rather than exploits. Um, so if we take FuzzDB, for instance, uh, you look at the XSS attack payloads, and we'll, we'll post a link to this. Let me see, I'm pulling them up right now. If we look at the XSS attack payloads, you know, there's you know, hundreds of payloads that are in there, right? Just the other list has something like 167 different payloads, which are really interesting from a, an exploitation perspective but don't necessarily give us a lot of information outside of maybe running five or six of those payloads from a flaw perspective. Uh, If you're searching for cross-site scripting and encoding flaws, there are realistically a limited subset of characters that we need to search for. We don't need to search and know completely that this one instance of XSS was vulnerable in IE9, for instance. We just need to know that the flaw happened and that those characters were unencoded. So my recommendation for security testers when they're trying to implement those tests in a, in a CI/CD pipeline is to identify those dangerous characters. Uh, so one, like the XSS other payload list from FuzzDB, 
Uh, realistically, you're probably looking at only five or six characters that you really need to search for to speed up that test and positively identify cross-site scripting, or at very least, the possibility of cross-site scripting. Things like a less-than character, a greater-than character, a, a, a single quote, a double quote, and maybe an ampersand. And then, realistically, you've actually covered all of the different uh, payloads that exist in that that could be dangerous to your application. Uh, Ken, have you ever implemented any sort of security unit test in that way? Mm -hmm. My my unit tests, creating security unit tests, as you know, have been primarily for educational reasons. Hold on one sec. My son just just dropped in. Hey. Hey, Max. Oh, you're upset? Yeah, you are. Oh, come here. John. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to do this podcast now. So I, it's good. It's quick. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, I'll talk. Go, go talk to mommy for Halloween. No, stop. What do you I, mean? Stop? I'm not going to help. Okay. I'm like so See, sad. See, this is what happens when you work from home and you do podcasts from home. Well, so you can continue without me, Seth. Off. No, 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 no. All right. <laughs> One second. I'll be right back. No worries. Looks like we've got Steph and Edwards joining us tonight as well. You have children. You can continue without me, Seth. Yes. Yeah. Ken has children, so you know, I have children. You know, I have I have locked doors too, and like we've got <laughs> Steph and Edwards joining us tonight as well. You have children. Oh, uh, Stephan, you probably do want to mute the YouTube channel. You know. I have children. You know, I have I have locked doors too. Like we've got Stephen Edwards tonight as well. Oh, uh, Stephen, you probably do want to mute the YouTube channel. That's what I'm looking yeah, for right now. Tonight is all sorts of lively. Like this is <laughs> yeah, it is. This is live. Like you would not believe. Apparently. Yeah. Uh, we've said it before. It's not super. I mean, even now I got my son on the other side of this monitor. He's just messing with my uh, bobbleheads. So. And Stefan, this looks like Stefan joined us. I had Stefan was asking about, or Stefan was mentioning something when you were talking about uh, fuzzing. Yep. And uh, so I thought he could add to that conversation. Well, I mean, you know, obviously I, I work uh, in a slightly different space, but, um, you know, property checkers, uh, hypothesis, those sorts of things. I mean, they're, they're very interesting to see what people are doing with those. Um, and I, I was just curious what, your thoughts are on, uh, you know, those sorts of like that sort of fuzzing, like tactical guided fuzzing, um, as well as things like AFL, Redomsa, those sorts of things. Yeah, um, I, like I'm all for it. Like, like I said, most of most of my thoughts around this were formed when I initially, like, doing some of the edge case testing and other things that I did, you know, all the way back in my college days. Right, the the plans that we would uh -huh. form and everything like that—it's very, very targeted. And I still feel like we do a pretty you know, piss poor job of that when we're doing something like a web assessment. We really don't search for a lot of the those edge cases that are interesting and that actually could lead to further exploits. Um, but you're jumping more into you know, almost the low level you have access to code and you're doing the testing from a you know plan perspective is that what you're asking about well i mean you can certainly right like we we have symbolic executors that actually work on on binary right like so in case everyone doesn't know i actually work for trail bits so 
we have tools like Manticore, which actually work at, at binary level. They don't necessarily have to have source code access. They they work on x86 binaries, EBM, and that sort of stuff. Um, and then we do have tooling to lift binaries up into a high, higher representation and, and do that sort of uh, testing against them. This was what I was going to talk about next time I was on the podcast, but <laughs> we're, we're already getting into it slightly now. Yeah. Um, but those sorts of like random random mutation checks and like you would see in Radamsa or um, in AFL, AFL obviously needs source code access or it works best with source code access. But those sorts of like unguided fuzzers are pretty interesting for finding edge cases. I actually was just fuzzing a client's virtual machine. Uh, so a client gave us a bespoke virtual machine uh, with a, a, a different instruction set. And we wanted to you know, see all of the edge cases within that virtual machine, opcode wise, as well as like the formatting and, and like structure wise. And we just threw, I threw Radamsa at it. One of my coworkers, uh, Bobby Tonic, he threw a uh, GoFuzz at it. Yep. So we got it from both the, the random side as like random binary mutation and generation all the way through to um, like, you know, guided fuzzing and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, super interesting. Yeah. And I like, it, it, it's interesting how trail that's or how you guys come at it, right? From a, like most of the time that I'm talking to developers, it's not necessarily from the from the red team side as much, right? It's not like they're throwing me a binary or something like that. They're throwing me almost higher level code, right? Something that's running on that virtual machine, and you know, mm -hmm. at that point, it's pretty easy for us. Like the code review stuff that Ken and I have done, it's easy for us to step into. All right, we know that we know that these are all the parameters. We know this is all the, this is everything that the application is accepting, so we can write those unit tests out. Very rarely do I actually see them go through that effort, though. So then, mm -hmm. turning it over to somebody like you, where you know they've handed you a binary, and you know to be to be fair, I don't know like how Veracode or somebody else approaches that same problem. Right, where they, when they get that binary from static analysis perspective, if they're running it through those same sort of fuzz tests, or if they're approaching it more from the exploit, you know, hey, we know that this string causes a, you know, SQL injection or whatever, you know, or some sort of buffer overflow. So those are the payloads we're going to use rather than something like the Redomsa where it is just a, you know, hey, we're mutating things to see what's going to happen. Wait, I didn't realize Veracode does fuzz testing. I didn't even know that. I, I mean, I think from a C, C++ perspective, they, I, I mean, a security, the security tests that they're running have to be some sort of a fuzz, right? It's probably not, but it's probably payload-based. I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to somebody that's there to actually see what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a couple different paths you could take with that. Um, you obviously can do mutation testing, right? Like, you can mutate known, like what you did with Sputter, Seth. Like, yeah take known payloads and just mutate over that that small set of things. Like you notice the six characters that you really had to worry about for, for XSS and SQL injection and, and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, you can, you can work from there. You can work uh, random walks. So you can literally take something and just start to generate garbage and, and see where it gets you in the binary. Um, you know, and you can do guided testing. You can do all sorts of interesting interesting directions. Depends on really what you want to do. Um, we cover like fairly bits, especially in, in the blockchain space, we have um, Echidna, which is like quick check. It's property-based fuzzing, right? So you describe some property that you're, some invariant about your application. 
um, you know, some number should always be greater than 1,000 or something like this. And Echidna will walk through and call all of your, your functions within, within your program and see if any sequence of functions actually causes your program to break that property. So giving it random data, random, random function calls, can we break the application? Okay. Whereas like symbolic execution, you're actually pushing a symbol instead of a concrete value and walking through and seeing what, what the application does. So for example, if you come to an if statement, you can generate both sides of the if statement and then see which conditions actually provide you both sides there, what path you get to. And then you throw that into an SMT, uh, a satisfiability modulo theory, <laughs> a theorem prover basically. And you ask it, what value concretely gives me this condition? And how do I get to this error path down here? So we, we've done a lot of research and other companies, other teams have worked on those sorts of things before previously. And, um, you know, it, there's a lot of really interesting stuff you can do in the space. That's why I was curious what you're what you're seeing there and, and whatnot, because obviously we work in a slightly different space. Yeah, yeah, I, and like I'm saying, like the low level, you know, the, the the point that you're getting to with most of those apps, uh, most of the developers that I end up dealing with aren't aren't necessarily even approaching it from that perspective. They're doing more of a a yeah, QA, I mean, you know, functional I, UI test, and then we're like modifying it so they can actually approach the you know, compliance of, hey, we've actually done some security testing. So almost re-implementing a black box approach into a level that can go quickly and at least give them some assurance that they haven't, they haven't messed something up, right? Completely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like one big way I've seen this done is like with uh, authorization tests, making sure that there are negative test cases, you know, and just validating that the authorization works as expected. I mean, that's, I would consider that as a, a security, a security unit test. And then yeah. like, I mean, maybe it's not so much fuzzing, right? But it is asking questions and validating that things are working as they should. Yeah. And then the other way uh, in terms of fuzzing is I, we actually do have someone who's, we've got like a modified version of uh, GoFuzz or whatever. Mm -hmm. is, that? Was, is that what it's called? GoFuzz? GoFuzz is one of the Go fuzzing libraries, yeah. Yeah, from which is great. Right. Really awesome. <clears throat> so, this is right. Um, yeah, so then it's like, I believe, yeah, so you can basically hook this into like a C, C++ app. And, uh, and, and yeah, that's, it just has like a ton of payloads that it, that it can run and, and buzz. And that's the only other, I guess from my like practical experience or yeah, what I've seen put into to practice, it's all been pretty basic. Like not, not about, you know, symbolic execution or anything. Well, you, you know, <laughs> the way I explained it, I had a client ask this very question the other day. Like what do I, can I get rid of my unit tests if I'm fuzzing my application? Like, do I need to have these sorts of things anymore? And the way I explained it is like when you have unit tests, when you have those sorts of things, you're codifying what you intend to happen, negative or positive, right? If you have a failed test, you know, you're expecting it to fail for a specific reason, an authentication error or something like this. Right. Whereas fuzzing, you're, you're, you're trying to find all of those things that you did not consider, that any of those intentional items that you could not codify, you're looking for fuzzing to, to find those sorts of things. And then symbolic execution is one step above that 
And be, beyond that is abstract interpretation. Whereas you're, you're really starting to model the way that the application works and really codify all those states and those paths and those transitions between them. That's when you're, you're getting towards the higher levels. I and guess fuzzing is one way, one way to get there. I guess my question to you is, do you see that? Cause like, I'm wondering, I know we do fuzzing, especially with go a variant of go fuzz on like driver libraries, right. For mm-hmm. say connecting to a database or something, but in terms of um, some of the more popular languages like Node or whatever, Ruby, okay, well, I won't say Ruby, but <clears throat> Elixir, <laughs> Node, et cetera, Golang, maybe not so much Golang, but are you working or are you seeing people fuzz like the frameworks and the language themselves to see if they're like their middle web, web uh, middleware is, you know, vulnerable to something or like, I just don't, trying to trying to besides the libraries put a concrete sort of like idea on how that would like what's the value i guess of that sure i mean we tend to bring it in when it's something very complicated that we can't ourselves model very quickly and understand so similar to what what seth was doing with sputter right it's like we're trying to find all of the places that your application breaks that i can't think of some sequence of ampersands and and you know angle brackets to get there um but now you're just doing it at a slightly lower level. Um, I used it quite a bit when I was out in Salt Lake City for a specific client that Seth knows. Um, and it was, it was just like, there was no way that I was going to be able to figure out all of the edge cases of this application. So creating a payload, seeing what crashes, and then saving that and then walking it back and maybe expanding or minimizing the payload myself by hand really that's where fuzzing really helps me it it helps me find all of the weird things that i myself can't think of and symbolic execution is very similar as well it finds all the weird paths through an application that you maybe literally could never create within a, a normal system you know have you seen any like framework level issues doing that like a framework's just whatever you know it's built on top of um its libraries that it's built like it's just it can't handle certain things maybe you've presented denial of service conditions or anything like that? Yeah, denial of service, we found injection issues, lots of crashes, um, lots of parsing issues, those sorts of things. Absolutely, we've seen those sorts of things quite a bit. You don't want to name any any frameworks? No, I can't name any. Damn it. Lots lots of C code, uh, lots of Go code. Um, We've actually broken uh, conditions within Go itself. Now, they've been fixed in later later builds of Go. and we don't hit those same edge cases as we're going through, but you know the, it still stands like we're hitting something weird in in older versions of Go that you just you know was not meant to be hit. That's surprising. I did not. I did not expect Go to pop up as. Uh... Yeah, I don't think anything with that level of scrutiny is going to have failing edge cases, right? Uh, there, there's just so much code in some of those. I, I mean, you, th- you think about something like Node and the number of APIs, and then especially as you introduce middleware into it, Express or whatever else can, the, the, the attack surface that we tend to look at is very kind of, hey, you implemented something on top of that, right? rather than, hey, it's you're kind of asking about that middleware or the framework layer. Um, and building a fuzzer for that is almost like you've got to model out an application that exercises every single API call, every function call, every possible 
you know, object creation. Um, so there's not a lot of, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of people that actually go through that level of effort. Yeah. Cause I mean, you gotta, you've got your, you've got your request and response sequences, which are being handled by like the middleware. And you mentioned express express being one of them. You've got your ORMs handling SQL calls and Stefan mentioned, you know, finding some injection uh, issues, which I think is total. I mean, that makes total sense, honestly. Um, and that's something that I think would be, I almost want to say would be pretty quick to, to find. You'd be, it would be pretty quick to find injection issues that way fuzzing. Mm-hmm. Like what else could, what else do frame, frame frameworks handle sessions? So they do like serialization of sessions. I was trying to think so, of what else like you input could. validation, input validation issues, output encoding issues, uh, memory handling issues, memory allocation issues, memory pressure. So for example, um, with fuzzing before previously, I've actually been able to force uh, conditions such that the, the application actually crashes because it just allocates too much and then it, it EOMs. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. What about yeah. like size of the request? It just, you know, I mean, we've got, yeah. we've got web standard, um, web standards that put caps on those things. But like, if it's not, you know, was that part of the parsing issue that you were talking about too? Like it can be absolutely, you know, but then also when you get to fuzzing, it may be something like you send it a request that's 10,000 characters, but you tell it it's like minus a hundred thousand characters. And the application does something really wonky with that combination there was actually generated by fuzzing so interesting hmm. yeah there's a lot of interesting stuff that falls out with it and then you for developers you have frameworks like um you know like hypothesis and like echidna and those sorts of things depending on the space that you're working in to allow you to do uh property checks which is basically uh fuzzing with specific unit test style declarations uh, involved so it's it's there's a lot of interesting stuff that's coming out especially recently that's been very good i can post a link to a hypothesis for you so are we going to see some cvs pop out with the with your name uh, anytime soon from well <laughs> no no <laughs> <laughs> Because everything I do is under non-disclosure. But I mean, uh, some of the other folks that have worked at, at Trello Bits and, and do work at Trello Bits are really great in that space. Um, so like Ryan Stortz with Zombies on Twitter and uh, Sophia, I'm going to mangle her name, uh, but Sophia Calicendi on 44 on Twitter. Um, Sophia actually just won uh, Flareon with, with some of her tooling. Uh, it's a reverse engineering challenge. Yeah, so, I'm looking that up. <laughs> like, yeah, so, so there's lots of tooling and lots of things that come out in that space that that we do um, just from fuzzing or starting with fuzzing and then walking it back the entire way or starting with symbolic execution and walking back to a payload we can test. I think the, the concept of being able to <clears throat> ask questions, like you said, sort of backwards in the sense of <clears throat> how do I get to this conditional or, the, or sorry, not this conditional, but the code that executes in the case of a conditional and go backwards from there. That's pretty, that's, that's pretty interesting. But what are like the, uh, what are the, I mean, is it sort of a situation where 
you're fuzzing, you get a result that's unexpected, and then you and then you walk back, or are you walking back? Like, what's what's kind of the practical application of of having that um, of doing that? And also, I'm going to put flare reverse engineering right now. Yeah, we can we can pull hypothesis as well. I can send that to you. Um, but yeah, when you're doing symbolic execution, basically you're 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 trying to find all of the various paths. And then you would request some other proving system to tell you what the the combination of these paths give you, the combination of values that actually got you to this location. So, uh, for example, I'm working on a symbolic execution engine for the, the virtual machine that I've been working on. And one, so what I would do is if you have, like, two numbers that are added, you'll add a trace. You'll, you'll actually watch that value throughout the rest of the application and build up this path of values. So it starts with three plus four, and then over here we multiply it by seven, and then we you know, divide it by 12 over here. And for some reason, that path that we walk through causes an error. And tracing all of those values and tracing that symbolically, we can come back to a concrete value, basically solve for x. So we right. start with, we don't know what x is equal to up here, and we trace through, and it's like, oh, x is equal to 3.79 for some reason. But we didn't code for that. It's not, it's not something that we came up with. It's just an edge case in our application for some reason. So. Oh, and we should probably mention who you are. <laughs> it's like, no. We never did that. I just thought about that. Like, okay. Oh, here's Stefan. Jump yeah. on in. Stefan's actually going to come on to uh, talk more about, I mean, you know, we could talk a little bit about not, about Stefan now, but both Seth and I work with Stefan. Uh, he's at logical L O J I K I L on Twitter. I'll put I'll put it in into the into the chat, uh, both chats. Um, but yeah, so uh, the I, I've said this before about you, Stefan, but you're basically the guy that I have to Google everything that you say. <laughs> You know, it's funny, going to Trail of Bits, I can finally be the stupid person in the room. I can be the, like, lukewarm, like, mouth-breathing person who doesn't know what's going on all the time, and it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's me with every <laughs> conversation that you and I have, so. Yeah, no, yeah. but, you know, all jokes aside, you're, uh, you've spent a lot of time at the low-level sort of, um, obviously, your background is in application security, but it's also in, like, languages in general uh stefan's written a few of his own languages just for for fun uh which is <laughs> that that statement in and of itself um but yeah so you know you you've you've done a lot at the low level compiler um sort of sort of level and um you've done quite a bit with just programming language theory mm-hmm. um i'm trying to think if there's i mean you've We'll talk more about your background, I think, um, when we officially wow. officially have a Stefan <laughs> devoted uh, episode. Um, but yeah, Seth, anything you wanted to add there? No, not necessarily. I mean, our AppSec minute turned into our AppSec, AppSec 30 minutes. I don't know. Whatever. Whatever. Um, <laughs> There's no agenda. But in general, I like, you know, when, when it com- comes back to it, what I was really saying was you want to do unit testing, but you want to yep. be careful about it. You want it like... I like the targeted unit testing in a CI/CD environment, right? Like even the uh, the the testing that you're talking about, the fuzz testing that you're doing, can be useful. 
but I don't necessarily see that as something that you could run, you know, within a limited time frame that a lot, that a lot of these groups actually spin out, right? That's more of a concerted security effort to, to implement and find additional flaws in an application, whether they be security flaws or just you know, memory handling that could lead to something or, you know, just stability flaws, right? Yeah, the, the only thing that's good about fuzzing is that if you take what you find randomly and then turn it into unit tests to make sure you never have that regression again. Yep. So it's like a, it's outside your CID, CICD pipeline, but it leads back into your CICD pipeline so that you have that sort of like mixed feedback there continuously. Um, and that's I, that's a good recommendation in and of itself, right? You get a penetration test done or something like that. Anything that is found in that can easily feed into a unit test that would check to make sure that it never happens again. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we recommend for, like in the blockchain space, there's, there's Truffle, which is used for testing. Um, and Echidna does property testing. And things that you find from Echidna, which is, you know, you can write, rewrite as tests within your Truffle space so that you know from now on that you never fail that test again. You never have that issue. And then you can rerun a kidnap to, you know, fuzz the heck out of your, your properties and see if there's some way that we break it now with new code releases. Yeah. Found the link yep. to kidnap, by the way, and put it in the uh, chat. Yeah, it's, it's a really cool tool. It's written by one of my coworkers, uh, JP. We have a JP at Trail of Bits as well, not just JP <laughs> at Invisium. So, um, but yeah, JP at Trail of Bits, super, super smart guy. Uh, Japesonator on, on Twitter. Um, and yeah, he, he came up with a kid that's written in Haskell. So of course I love it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see the stuff that he, he comes up with, with that and all the different work that they're doing there. So I like the, the diagram, the image for it. <laughs> yeah. You know, this? <laughs> it's a, it's a hedgehog, <laughs> but Seth, you know, to your point, like to have those those tests that, you know, run within a specific time frame. We've, the way we framed it previously is that like tests and static analysis should run like within an hour, right? Yeah. Echidna and property checks like hypothesis should run in like a day. And symbolic execution, you should, you know, maybe looking at a week to get running on a large, a very large application, right? And then when you go beyond that, when you go to formal verification, abstract interpretation, those sorts of things, you're looking at weeks maximum weeks maybe months of effort so yeah. so yeah and that's that's kind of a good probably rule of thumb for any of that because you get into some of that higher level lower level whatever however whichever level testing right besides just the the normal security or like just the normal unit testing that you're doing you're actually stepping into more framework issues Mm -hmm. uh, that you may not necessarily see with your code that you've written on top of the framework. So it may still be a problem and it may still introduce a security issue, but it but it's probably has more to do with the overall ecosystem and you're starting to discover more things than just what you've written. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's not that it's not useful. It's, I mean, obviously it's a, it's an issue. And I mean, we see the same thing. Can you dig into some of those and we find, you know, stuff with middleware or whatever in rails or a, Node. Oh yeah, there's always something. There's always something. Yeah, and whether it's based on a CVE or it's you know old version or it's something that's new, uh, it's part of the ecosystem. It's definitely in scope, but it, 
it may not necessarily be a direct result of your developer's code on there. No, right. So that's that's the reason I was asking that question is that it, so like normally when you do an assessment, you're not. I mean, if you get that, if you get like some weird behavior back from your, you know, like from your, your, I don't know, we'll say you're using burp suite or something and you're sending some fuzzing payloads at it and you get some weird behavior and okay, maybe you'll, you'll investigate a, a bit, but normally like framework level issues or whatever, like they, they, that isn't something that you're really testing for. Right. So it's interesting because if you, I feel like if you put a, a decent amount of time towards it, and you see this with like, because you mentioned Rails, they have a, they have a, I think they, well, I think they're on Bug Crowd maybe, Bug Crowd or Hacker One, one of the two. Anyways, they've got they've got a uh, a bug bounty running because you know there's definitely things found for the framework. So that having been said, I'm curious, like what percentage of paid research is occurring for like devoted to to fuzzing frameworks themselves rather than just like the normal consulting model where you're being paid to just assess the code written on top of the frameworks. Um, I, I don't genuinely, genuinely have an answer for that. I don't, I have not seen a whole lot of consultancies in my experience doing framework level kind of research. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to, because a, most of the, the framework level stuff that you get paid for goes under NDA and you never see it again. Um, it's one of the things that I was very interested in when I first joined Trail of Bits. I asked Dan about it. We talked about it and we, we do a lot of open source stuff, but it's, it's rare to have those sorts of resources devoted for you. And, um, you know, Cure 53 does some stuff in that space. And, um, you know, we obviously do some stuff in that space, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to, to just be able to dedicate that sort of time and effort to a framework, just a framework, you know, in order to make things safer. By the um, way, it's, Rails is on bug crowd for anyone that wanted to know. That wants to have bugs. <laughs> So I'm trying to think of what else is on here. Like I'm trying to look at what else is on um, Bug Crowd. That's a framework. Uh, I don't. I don't know about uh, Bug Crowd so much, but I know like Augur is on Hacker One. Um, some of the Apache projects are out on those as well. So Augur is a uh, blockchain market space. So it's it's a little bit. It's like a it's like a market, but it's also a little bit of a framework. It's it's weird. Um, and the and then in the blockchain space, you'll see like the Ethereum Foundation does its own uh, bugs, and the Tezos Foundation does its own sort of like bug bounties and whatnot. So, are you spending a decent amount of time on uh, on uh, blockchain related stuff now? Yeah, I'd I'd say probably a good seventy five percent of my my projects right now are blockchain related, hyperledger related things. Um, lots of like fintech, lots of um, government NGOs coming up online with it. So, uh, what are common issues with blockchain? Like, I mean, everything, <laughs> what, is that, what is everything? I mean, literally like, like OWASP top 10 or, you know, plus everything else or. So we're, we work on a, a, a project called not so smart contracts. So where we try to collect those sorts of common blockchain, especially in the Ethereum space sort of issues. Um, and Ethereum has a, a foundation that we're part of or a subgroup we're part of called ETHSEC, which is kind of analogous to OWASP, trying to put together those sorts of like those sorts of things, like what are the top 10 issues that you see? Um, 
a lot of the time what we see are very low level issues. So time of check, time of use, reentrancy style issues. Um, we see people having uh, kind of like MFLAC, like missing function level access control. We see those sorts of missing access control things. But then we also see stuff like uh, integer overflow or integer underflow and uh, those sorts of like machine level issues. So blockchain introduces things that you would normally see in the C, C++ embedded space. And it gives that to people who only understand JavaScript previously. And it does that with an entirely shitty, horrible language. And then is really, really wondering why you have all of these issues continuously. Uh, you know, it's like dumping gasoline into a, a, a dumpster fire and then wondering why the entire fire like explodes out of control. Like they're not trying to make it safe safe just yet. There are some efforts like Viper to make it safer, but it's just, it's not there yet. What language are we talking about here? I mean, you mentioned client, like people who wrote, wrote JavaScript previously. Uh, so Solidity is the main programming language for Ethereum and Solidity is uh, JavaScript-like. Uh, it has all of the downsides of JavaScript combined with all of the downsides of C and none of the upsides of either. <laughs> well, you sold me. <laughs> <laughs> So wow. it's, it's an interesting, it's fun because it's like, I get to work with compilers. Like I work with grammars and compilers and stuff like that. Um, the, the trail of its team brings a lot of really interesting tools. I get to think about stuff um, in a very different way. Um, but unfortunately the, the environment that we're trying to make better is just a, a very terrible one. Ethereum is a, Ethereum is an interesting idea, and it's a—it's just language-wise, it's, it's just—it's so painful. It's so painful. So it's fairly common for you to to basically come across all these issues mentioned in the um, not so smart contracts. We got bad randomness, denial of service. I don't know what contracts can be forced to receive ether. So okay. basically, in in blockchain, you can say like. Hey, Seth has an ADAP. I hate that word, but it ha he has a DAP. He has a distributed application, and I can, like Seth didn't code his his smart contract to accept money, right? So, what does the application actually do when I send it money? Like some applications fail horribly when you send them money. Isn't that what it's designed to do? Well, yes, like the language is designed that way, but you can still screw that up. Like, again, the language has not made it safe. There are safer languages like Obsidian um, that try to make these like try to make these sort of common patterns and transactions safer. But that's just not what's happening in general. Solidity does not make things safer. And we need fuzzing. We need that sort of testing there because people are just not getting they're not they're not figuring out the tests that they have, they're not figuring out the edge cases they have, and they're not figuring out the protocols that they have. So it kind of sounds like there's there's a surprising amount of people doing development in Solidity for smart contracts. Um, is this pri primarily, is this like a, a, a random bunch of like some startups trying to do their own like whatever, you know, version of um, Fiserv? Or is it like mainly large financial service companies or like, is that, is it, I mean, are you seeing a mix or? It's a pretty good mix. 50-50 established companies attempting the, or established agencies trying to get in. And um, 
as well as like startups, really, really interesting fintech startups that uh, have interesting and novel ideas on how to like securitize things and whatnot. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's my uh, like, maybe it's just because I'm such a I'm an idiot when it comes to blockchain. Seriously, like I don't know a whole lot, but I mean, I don't understand the uh, I, I, get, I, don't, I wouldn't say I don't understand. I, I haven't really looked into like what's the primary driver to move to the blockchain from um you know, from whatever traditional, I guess it's, it's, it's leaving, a. from what little I know about smart contracts, it's supposed to be a uh, safe way of um, exchanging money and records and in keeping uh, and record keeping, but like, what's the advantage for a financial services company to, to do that over their pre-existing sort of setup? So the, the big thing for financial services, fintech government, things like that is counterparty risk. So it, let's say Seth and I want to establish a contract, right? And uh, we have a whole bunch of people that we need to prove that this contract was executed and signed and Seth received the money that I said he was going to receive. It's really great for that sort of system. So if you want to show to the entire world that a set of transactions was cryptographically signed and you know approved by a consensus of your peers, uh, it's great for that sort of stuff. So money, uh, sending, they're called ERC-721s, non-fungible tokens. So these are like uh, houses and things like this in the future. Right now, it's usually like, um, you know, rare Pepe's and things like this. But, right. Uh, but basically, it's for transferring value, for transferring something around. Uh, I am not sure. There are people who are trying to make blockchains into completely general purpose computers. I'm super leery of that. I think there's all sorts of problems with it. Um, but people will try, of course. So is this one of, the, one of those situations where, like, let's say uh, all, I don't know, like, for whatever reason, all of the records get burned down, right? Like all records for Capital One or Wells Fargo, they just, for whatever reason, like all records are lost. Is this a situation where, you know, basically these contracts are a way for everyone to sort of, we don't need the Wells Fargo's records. We ever, this is a record we can, sort of everybody can access and see and um, the, the transactions aren't lost and, you know, we're, we can be, we can have some assurance that they're, that it's legitimate, the, the things that we're seeing. Yes, exactly. And that I haven't, I haven't done anything to tamper with them because it's like Git, right? Right. If I present you with a Git hash and you, you calculate through the tree, you can see it's a Merkle tree, right? You can see, you can work, walk through and see those hashes go through or it's a, it's a, a, a directed acyclical graph, but still same idea. Basically, you can walk through the tree, hash everything at those values and come to the same conclusion. I have the same uh, Git repo that you do. Ah. And so what, what blockchains attempt to do is just distribute that process to everyone. Now, there's different types of blockchains. There's different uh, sorts of ways of coming to consensus, and they, they have different use cases. I, I do think people are trying to... I think blockchain is hot right now. It's kind of like Web 2.0. <laughs> like, not everyone needs a Web 2.0 web. I mean, I'm old, so clearly Web 2.0 is not a thing, you know, not something we talk about anymore. But as we, everyone on this call remembers, Web 2.0 for a while was like everyone was talking about it. It was like, but what are electrolytes? Like, do you even know? What- <laughs> <laughs> we need more Ajax. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So that it, makes sense. 
I think a lot of people are trying to get into this space and just aren't there yet. Like they're not really prepared for it. So, or they're not really sure why they're going in, but they can get investment capital. They can work on those sorts of things. And it's, it's an interesting space and I'd like to see more development there. I think it can become something useful like the web. It's just, it, it, it's, uh, it's in its infancy right now. It's embryonic. Yeah. I think, because, you know, we all hear the jokes about everybody's kind of, you know, shitting on blockchain and machine learning or whatever. But um, that having been said, I feel like there are valid use cases where it would work, but that I'm not well enough first and lack the imagination right. to see all of the really possibly very cool applications and, and where it would fit in. And so that's why I'm asking you all these questions because I'm wondering, you know, maybe I'm the only one who's confused on what, you know, what, what all it actually brings to the table, but I'm sure that there are things that it does bring to the table that um, can, can be helpful. Yeah, it's, it's good for distributed transactions that you want to have everyone be able to see. Um, that can be service-based companies. You know, we, we deal with folks who are uh, do trading on the chain. So they actually resolve orders on chain via smart contracts. And it works, it, it eliminates counterparty risk. I don't have to trust Seth, Seth doesn't have to trust me. You know, I don't have to say, oh, I'll send you the money. Oh, but I, you know, it's gonna get there, don't worry, it's fine. Seth can literally see, I sent the money and then Seth can, can place his order. And we can have a smart contract that ensures those two things happen. And if it doesn't, I get my money back and Seth gets his money back. So. Right, so from like a, like a PayPal Venmo type situation, it's pretty useful in, in, in that kind of, although what you're talking about is not even making the final purchase until some, like not completing the contract until something else has been seen. Like for instance, that, that first transfer of money. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's good for escrow. It's good for multi-signature validation. So if Seth and I own a company and we want to pay you, we can, have a contract that said Seth and Stefan have to agree to this. And it holds our money until Seth and Stefan both agree to this. So it's useful for that sort of thing. Nice. Yeah, I could see that being I could see that being useful. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's I, useful. I could. I could like for instance, I mean we we, we just did training uh, for OWASP and um you know we had to do our little uh so because Seth and I have different um, LLCs, right? And we obviously get paid for the training. Uh, we have to submit individual W-9s to them. And then um, like there's a bit of back and forth, you know, on this or that costs, et cetera, how many students attended. Uh, yeah. And so in a situation like that, I could definitely see that that being pretty, uh, uh, it being useful, right? Yeah. Like if basically for every student that says like they may, they, you know, for every student that pays, right. Like it's a simplified situation for us where we say like, Oh, okay, well this, I'm just using this as an example because it's something that I can apply this practically to. Of so, course. Yeah. And then like we based off those students and like everybody said, yay, we, we paid and whatever. And then Seth and I can easily uh, agree to take X amount 50, 50, you know, and we can show that that's a no wasp could show that that's being dis been distributed. 
mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So in that kind of situation, we, but again, I, I don't know how that, well, I, yeah, I could see how that, cause there are services that somewhat do some of this, right? Like it's just not cryptographically. Well, I, I don't know. Like it's proprietary, right? It's whatever their system they're using. So claim it's, it's cryptographically secure. Yeah. But, but probably not. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it's useful for that sort of thing, that sort of counterparty risk and that sort of like escrow services and multi-signature authentication. You could even in your in your class like example, you could have the students pay and you could see that they cryptographically paid and then only give students grades who had paid. Like yeah, you could, there's nothing, no reason why you couldn't do that. You can codify all that sort of stuff. But again, you could sort of make the argument that all of this has and that can and has been done just without the, uh, the cryptographically secure part of it, I guess. Well, well, cryptographically secure, you can do what you can't do is counterparty risk unless you have a wider consensus there. Oh, I see what you mean. So that we all agree that this happened basically. Right. I can, I can, in a single system, I can say that Seth signed every one of these transactions what I can't say is that those are the transactions I expected to be there because Seth has the power to sign them no matter what. Ah, uh, so like, oh, okay, so there's there's repudiation there. There's like exactly. saying, okay, all right, now now I totally see. Okay, cool. Thanks for explaining the blockchain on Absolute Absolute. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, tag, honestly, we'll I tag the episode. <laughs> Stefan explains blockchain. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, bringing it back to testing though, um, we do see a lot of a lot of blockchain folks have backgrounds in like traditional JavaScript testing, and they they bring Truffle tests and they bring they sometimes even bring Echidna te- properties to us. And then one of the things we we will do is talk about what the intentions there are, and see if there's any edge cases that we can find either through symbolic execution or through fuzzing to actually expand on those test cases and and why those are actual findings. So. It's cool. It's really neat to be able to work with developers and try to not only say, here's a bunch of like terrible problems that we found, but we can also say, here's a bunch of tests that we show that when you fix these, these, these tests, this code that we're handing you will not break anymore. So that's what's fun. It seems like an interesting thing to just because honestly, for the, for one, the fact that it's new and, and two, the fact that they're, because it's new and because it's, um, I mean, newish that, um, you're kind of building in, you are making up your own sort of OWASP top 10. If you, if you want to call mm-hmm. it that, uh, that's gotta be fun. Like, do it you, is. yeah. I mean, are you guys, so you're keeping, I, I assume you're keeping track of like, or whoever all is all involved. Maybe it's multiple companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, keeping track of metrics on each one of these um, things that you're finding and uh, sort of creating a empirical data. We, we haven't got to that point yet. Um, we're talking about ways of, so the neat thing about the Ethereum community is that you can, you can just uh, describe these sorts of things. There's our ERCs and EIPs, right? So an ERC is kind of similar to an RFC. You basically you know, state you want to do these sorts of things. You have this idea. Whereas an EIP is the actual implementation thereof. So 
there is an ERC right now for creating something similar to the OWASP top 10. Um, Trailer Bits has some feedback on it. It was created by another company called Consensus. Um, but we're, we're working within the community to try to come up with something live on GitHub uh, with, with, you know, like to actually come up with those sorts of issues. And that's why not so smart contracts are out there. That's why like Echidna is out there and that sort of stuff. It's just there. It makes sense to put it out there and let other people use it. So. Nice. I'm looking up some of the things you mentioned. That's why I'm kind of quiet here. <laughs> no, Seth, it's no worries. You didn't have any questions on the blockchain? Just me? What's the blockchain? Is that <laughs> cyber related? Is that? No. <laughs> I don't no, know. I'm Did good. you have any no. experience with that, Seth? Or I mean, have you been exposed to that? Not necessarily. No, no, not, not really. Um, I'm going to pull you. I think the, yeah, exactly. Like every time, like we have, we have discussions on it and I keep looking into it. Right. Like I, I understand probably more how, you know, Bitcoin or something like that works, but the, the smart contract stuff is definitely interesting as far as where it's going and how that's being developed. I think there's going to be more and more of that that actually pops up, especially in the FinServe space that like you're saying. I think that's where it, you know, it reduces that risk. People are going to go that direction. But I also feel like there's a whole ton of startups that are out there that are trying to force, uh, force a technology and a name onto an industry that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, don't understand, like, who, who's that, you know, I mean, does that sell better just to put that name in, in there? Like, I can't imagine that. I, I'm, I'm curious, like, how what that does for your marketing. Does it does it make it more likely to be a product that's yeah, purchased? Or, blockchain, right? Yeah, like, I, I mean, how much, how, how much does that actually help? I, I well, did you ever see the Long Island Blockchain Company? <laughs> no, no. Uh, like, I, I think it was Long Island Ice Tea Company. They changed their name to like the Long Island Blockchain Company, and their their stock shot. They have no investment in blockchain whatsoever. They're not creating a blockchain. They're not using the blockchain. They just literally renamed themselves, and their stock just shot up through the roof. I think it, I think there's a little bit of a rational exuberance right now for it. But for those players who are in the space and actually working on Ethereum, I, or you know, it could be Tezos, Ethereum, that we work with some alternative blockchains. I'm actually working with clients right now who are creating a blockchain. Um, you know, those sorts of things can make sense. It's just, uh, you know, there are definitely people who are trying to force problems, like Seth said, into this space. And there are, there are venture capitalists who are throwing money at them to do so. Yeah, I mean, I could see VCs doing that, right? Not that, not that every like, not that VCs are like, oh, stupid VCs. No, not, they're not. It's not like that. But there are certainly are VCs that are like dishing out smaller amounts just for stuff that sounds viable. Yeah, like angel investments and Series A and whatnot. Like, just like, oh, that sounds neat. Like, I'd love to have a blockchain portfolio, um, but. We actually have clients who come to us who help us, uh, who ask us to help them understand if an investment is worth it for them. Oh. Uh, you know, uh, we do all sorts of like interesting asset custody cases and things like that. So like if a client is holding at, like crypto assets, like is the way that they're holding these cryptocurrencies actually secure? So we, we work in related spaces. Yeah, it's, it's fun. There's a lot of very interesting things that go on there. 
Yeah, I didn't realize that about the the long blockchain company. I guess that's the name of it now. That's yeah. hilarious. I posted a link, by the way, to that, uh, uh, Stefan. Um, and I'm assuming that's probably what Seth, Seth's reading, but yeah. Well, I, was, I was looking at the, there's a Wikipedia article. Is there? It. Yeah, yeah. And it talks about how they were going to be delisted by the NASDAQ because of it. Yeah. Oh, they, crazy. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and that's just it, right? Like, I'm sure they got like a huge bump and it, so it almost looks like insider trading or, you know what I mean? That's <laughs> just like this crazy, I don't know. Yeah, it it, says it was I mean, it does go back to the web 2.0 days. It really does. You know, at that point, it made more sense probably for most companies to be jumping on the, you know, the internet bandwagon and all of that. But blockchain just doesn't, there's some problems that it solves well, right? And even smart contracts, but there's other problems where it makes absolutely no sense. And yet throwing your name at, throwing it into whatever gets you more money from the investors. So why not try? I guess. <laughs> they, they actually have a website still and it's got like crappy stock photos. <laughs> it's got the lock with the crypto, not random numbers looking crypto. Oh my God. What a piece of piece of work this is. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny to see that they just literally tagged like blockchain into their name and all of a sudden they were like, you know, everyone wanted a piece of it. It was a hot stock, even though it was literally just iced tea. <laughs> they've, got, they've got their corporate governance and the images for the for the people uh, that they list are just all broken. Because <laughs> it won't even render. Yeah, of course. Failed to load resource, not accessible. Yeah, that is hilarious. I think the, so the way that Ethereum says to think about uh, smart contracts is um, if you want to have a com like a global computer verify your calculation and it's on something that can run on a cell phone from 1999, it's an appropriate application for a block for Ethereum. There are alternative blockchains which speed things up. There are things like EOS, which are trying to make completely general purpose computers. Um, Joanna Rukowska actually just left Invisible Things. She's no longer working on Cubes, and she, she switched to Golem, which is a distributed blockchain computer system. So, I mean, people, people are, like, moving out of secure, like, pure security, like Cubes, to going over to work, on, uh, to work on blockchain stuff in a similar space, but obviously they're, they're working on something related there. So, Wow. Yeah, huh. Joanna Rukowska just left information security to go be the chief strategy, chief security officer over at, at Golem. I'm uh, looking that up. Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it feels, I mean, Ken and I were traveling for a few weeks and it feels like we're kind of out of, <laughs> we out are of out the loop on some stuff, right? You know, we've been teaching people how to, how to perform code reviews and that doesn't necessarily you know, jive with s sticking on Twitter and everything oh yeah yeah anyway. it was a fun couple of weeks or was it more than that i don't know i was gone out of the country <laughs> for two weeks and then we did absic how long ago was absic use it was that three weeks ago or three and a half yeah i can't remember three and a half three or half something like that yeah. yeah yeah so it was almost a month ago and then we yeah, turned around was... and went to australia and jet lag and all of that and then ken decided to take a vacation i know how dare i yeah. What a jerk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Posting pictures while the rest of us have to work. I know, I know. I was in Hobbiton with the Hobbits. 
uh, in New Zealand. That was fun. I, I hear there's a new, new blockchain company down there. You know, probably <laughs> there probably are us. There probably is Lord of the Blockchain or something. I don't know. Lord of the Blockchain. I'm stealing Lord that. Of the- <laughs> that. It's out of New Zealand. Nah, yeah, we had a good time. Um, I think it was uh, really rewarding. Like we, I mean, I guess we can talk about. I, I think we're getting to the end of the show. So, and um, Stefan, I know we're going to have you back on the November on November twentieth, so that we can basically talk more about like your sort of your your origin story because we've never gotten to talk to, to my never, origin story yeah, yeah we've never talked about it <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you're bit by a spider that's what you yeah, that was your exactly. yeah. yeah awesome your yeah. parents weren't like killed outside of a th- theater and then like they you were afraid of bats and stuff no no they eat themselves to death i mean spiders tend to to do that so it's yeah it wasn't really tragic it was just natural you know so. That, that sounds like a Stefan response. Yeah. <laughs> sure does. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I knew, to think about that. <laughs> I knew we we're going to have you back on, 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 and thanks by the way, for jumping in tonight. Um, of course. but I, I know we're going to have you back on November 20th so we can pick your brain even more. Um, but, uh, yeah, since we're coming to the end, uh, I mean, I guess the only thing to mention about the course is it was pretty fun because like by the second day, um, in AppSec Day, Mel- Melbourne, my favorite part of this was that we had everybody apply what they had learned for the second half of the, the second day. And, dude, we walked away with people who actually found issues inside of, like, open source applications because we had them download over. We gave them a list of, like, some cultivated, like, here's some apps that might be right to do a, a review on. And, you know, they paired up, like, three people, two people together. Um, and so we had them do follow our methodology, not necessarily so that they could find vulnerabilities, but so that they could get the whole course is about practice. We speak for like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, then they practice whatever we just showed. Um, and it builds each exercise builds upon itself. Anyways, the point being that after the, at the end of the second half of the day, these people came up and they, these students, they had not only like done an excellent job of basically breaking down what, you know, the, the, Everything about the application from his business person, business purpose to his technology stack to um, brainstorming uh, security weaknesses to go back and look at um, and creating a checklist to like actually having found vulnerabilities, uh, multiple groups found vulnerabilities. Um, it was amazing. It was a fun time. Like, what was your favorite part, Seth? Yeah, I mean, definitely seeing them put it into practice kind of re-energized me as far as like, oh, this is, you know, it, I know it's always worked for me, the, the process of how we distill an application and other things, but it's interesting to see others actually do the same thing. Um, it also takes me back to you know, almost what we were talking about earlier about exploits and flaws is I feel like we put so much emphasis in the security community on, hey, what's the latest cool exploit? What's the latest cool technology? Whereas that's not the process that really any of us use on a daily basis to actually distill an application, to perform some sort of assessment, to actually fuzz. It takes so much more effort than just, hey, you know, I did X, Y, and Z, found X, Y, and Z, and followed this through, and all of a sudden, hey, I, you know, I had SQL injection, or I was able to transfer myself money, or whatever it is. We, we gloss over the time and the actual process that we use to do any of this. And it's, it's almost a detriment to people getting into the field because they feel like, 
hey, if I can't do this within the first two hours of looking at an application, uh, I, I'm done. I'm not a. I, I'm not an expert, right? Yeah, I mean, Stefan, that was the interesting part was that we created this sort of like we're we're still refining. We will continue to refine, but I mean, honestly, we've got our Seth and I had a, our own processes which were very similar mm -hmm. code reviews, and I'm sure you have your own process. But what we've uh, it's weird because we're taking that kind of that experience and we're sort of like and this isn't to pitch the course. This is to talk about like just the the fact that like there I haven't found a, a great set of like instructions out there for here's how you perform repeatable code reviews. Here's your, your process. Like here's a framework for doing that. Um, and so we're sort of like creating that, you know what I mean? Like that's, or we did create that and we did, we are handing that out to people and it's sort of an exciting thing just because like I said, we don't, we don't come across. I mean, have you guys really come across any, I, I had to learn this stuff through trial and error. I mean, I don't know that anyone was actually teaching, you know, here's how to do web app, mobile app. Well, what well, we're focusing on web app, but web app code reviews. Like, how did you learn, Stefan? Uh, I, I mean, I was a developer previously, so I, I've read a lot more code. And I don't think people appreciate how much code developers have to read. Like in, in security, like Seth said, we, we constantly focus on like the cool whiz bang thing, whereas like most of the time it's just ass and seat reading code. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and that, that, that's totally it, right? Is it's not, it doesn't, yeah, there's, you know, kind of flashes of inspiration when you're looking through that code, but most of it is how much time have I put in to this application, right? How much time have I taken to understand what's going on what the different functions are that I should be looking at and identifying those edge cases or whatever it is that, that would, that could lead to an exploit. It takes, I, I mean, it, it takes a lot more just kind of dedication and following the process than it does. Hey, I know that this is a vulnerable function from this API because of X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of that you get from experience definitely as a developer, but we've always said that kind of the best app sec professionals are ex-developers, right? Or they're, it's easier to come up as a application security person if you've done development in the past. Well, I also think your point, uh, Seth, about folks having, uh, like, pen testing being just terrible QA testing, I do think QA testers have really great backgrounds that they can just bring to bear. If they just understand the architectural controls and the flows, they're, they're awesome security resources. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. interesting. Did you have problems with people uh, reading code versus writing code? Like in the they, course they of get time. in, they can, they can like write stuff really quickly because they're they're using like IntelliSense or something like that, but they're not used to reading code ever. Oh, we actually had mostly. Um, so we in the second course, it was interesting. The first course was mostly security people, and the second course was mostly developers. And we, I would, I would say that. Uh, the developer, I mean, both groups did great. The developers did surprisingly well. Mm -hmm. And I say surprisingly well, just because, you know, my, my kind of thought there was that it was going to be, you know, if you come from a, a security background already, but I think it comes down to like what you said, they are used to reading code. Um, but again, it's also like, you know, we're looking at the, the overall overarching methodology. So yeah, there's definitely a skill in 
um, finding vulnerabilities. But you know, one of the things we talked a lot about was it's honestly about more about being um, organized and meticulous and following a process than it is like you know being the person that picks up because you know you see this how, how many times have you seen people who they dig into code and in the first day they find a couple you know vulnerabilities because they're just going they're just pinpointing you know these are the things i'm i'm looking for they've got their like but then you know there are things they look for uh, but then after like two three days they have nothing else that that was like that's what they've got whatever they found in that first day and the reason is because they're not being comprehensive they're not following a process and so there's somebody that's continually going at it at a paced level for five or 10 business days or whatever they're allotted um, or even three days, whatever the case is, will come away with more findings um, than that person who just was like, oh, I'm searching for SQL injection or I'm searching for whatever the business flaw, you know, and, right. and yeah, not following a process. So anyways, that's that was surprising though, I'll say, and, and it's probably what you said, the developers could read code really, really well. Mm -hmm. So... Just giving them, yeah. arming them with what to do is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that was the main feedback that we had from those developers is they were like, well, what, what is it that we're trying to look for? How, how does this differ from a, you know, a traditional code review, you know, where they, they dive in and you know, for an hour, they're only looking at 200 lines of code, right? At, at a max, which is, you know, that feels like, such a luxury to to any of us, right? Is you know only two hundred lines of code in an hour. You know, you know, you know how much code I have to comb through and actually be able to read and distill quickly. That's like that would be great, but no one's going to pay us to do that from a consulting perspective or even an internal perspective, right? Unless you work for Microhub over there, whatever it is now. Ah, uh, yeah. well, you know what? At, at Trailer Bits, we get some pretty long-term assessments. Um, I just got off one that was 18-person weeks. Wow. Oh, wow. That's unheard yeah. of. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. It's one of the things that we partner with clients to do is to get these really longer-term assessments so that we can actually go, like, actual, come away with actual understanding of code. Mm -hmm. So it's... it's I, I admit it's been a luxury and it's been really pleasant and it was totally a, a, a culture shock and shift for me when I went to Trail of Bits because I was like, holy crap, I, you know, first week I got to like knock all of these findings out. And then it was like, oh, wait, we have many more weeks to actually understand what's going on here and I can really dive into things. So it's, it's nice. I like it from that perspective. So you weren't triple billable with... Uh... One or two weeks to get your uh, all your assessments done here. Nope, and and no one made claims about me as a person either. So it was perfect. <laughs> amazing, that's amazing. That's awesome. My C my CEO thanks me when when things go well. It's pretty nice. I'm pretty happy with it. That sounds like sounds quite like a, a good, good uh, setup. Yeah, <laughs> Dan is Dan is actually nice when you do things. It's it's pretty uh, it's pretty impressive. That's awesome. Well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> as opposed cool. to no no all right well, I as opposed to you ken you yeah. big meanie no yeah, no i'm um he's not no, talking but I mean, about me but it's, um it's really nice i mean there's a grind across the industry right you know it's all about how many apps can we turn out as quickly as possible from a you know a, a lot of the consultancies and you know i'm even looking at like the big five right like the big 
accounting firms that have a security division now, you see them come in. At, you know, I've got a couple of clients that I see them come in and their security, you know, their code reviewers only have two days to actually analyze an application, two or three days, and that's it. That's all they get. Mm-hmm. But there's only so much that you can understand in that long, right? I mean, even if you have the process down, there's only so much that you're going to find. Sweet. You mean um, you can't read 100,000 lines of Java code in, in two days and, and have meaningful findings out of it? Uh, I, I might be able to find some SQL injection, do some regex searches, right? I, like, that's just it, right? They throw a, a static code analyzer at it. They review those findings. That's, you know, one day right there at least. And then the second day is poking around and then call it good. So but anyway, I mean, that's, that's kind of soapboxy, but it's, it's definitely... <laughs> It's definitely an issue, right? It really comes down to what the client wants. Is it a checkbox? Is it compliance? Is it actual security? Um, and I almost feel like we've got to cultivate more of those clients as you know, as consultants, as people in the industry that you know share that understanding that it's not just a quick fix. It's just not compliance that we're looking for. We actually want to fix their applications and make sure that people or make sure that they are they are secure. Um, anyway, Ken, what? Uh, like, was there anything else from the the conferences that you wanted to mention before we call it for today? Uh, not. I think some of the other things I want to talk about are going to eat up a lot of time. So maybe for the next episode. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, no, Kat. no, 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 not at all. <laughs> no, I'm glad you you jumped on. Honestly, like I really appreciate that. I'm the well, one who way asked, to go. Waste your nights. Yeah, I asked Stefan to come on. So if anything, I'm <laughs> I'm happy. But uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but. Uh, Dang. Next week, we've got Travis McPeak from Netflix. Uh, Mike McCabe. Stefan, you know Mike. I, I do. Know. Mike's going to join us on um, on the 13th. Um, this guy named Stefan Edwards on the 20th. Nice. Um, I don't what know who he is. Yeah, sounds crazy. Uh, November 27th, Matt Conda. Um, we got a few others. Sean Porras. Um, and... Uh, Keith Hoodlet, um, all coming on. So we've got a good lineup of guests. I know I had created like a little short update video where I mentioned we have a lot of good guests. We have a lot of good guests coming, minus Stefan. No, thanks again, Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> now I'll make sure to ring my googling fingers for your November twentieth episode. But um, uh, so we've got a good lineup, and I don't think there's anything else to mention. Um, well, I guess we can say it. I, I think it's going to be officially announced uh, soon, so we can just say it. Like um, our training course uh, got picked up for AppSec Cali, so we will be going to AppSec Cali this year. Nice. Yeah. That's so awesome. I'm excited because I missed LastCon. Yeah. Like LastCon and AppSec Cali are my two, are uh, a couple of my faves, and uh, just haven't gotten to them the last last couple of years. So. Yeah. Joe mm-hmm. Rosner, who is uh, out in out in, in uh, LA, he's been asking me to go to AppSec Cali for a while now. So that'd be fun. Maybe I'll go out there and meet up with you. And you totally yeah. should. You totally you should. should. Mm. I'm I'm gonna bring the uh, I'm gonna bring my wife out too. So it should be uh should be cool. Like you know, I'm gonna turn into fun week in Santa Monica. So that'd be really fun. Go out there. I'm writing that down. Yeah, write it down. 
Pen and paper, huh? You're still working on the notepads? I do. I have a blockchain of, of notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all one, one note after another. You exactly. sign them and you go on. So exactly. make sure that you, it's called yeah. link time stamping. That is actually a thing for newspapers, link time stamps. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, Keeping it lo fi. That's me. All right, cool. guys. Um, well, thanks for joining us tonight, Stefan. Anytime. That's- Always entertaining. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about the, you know other things on November 20th, um, and we'll get we'll try and get a calendar up with actually upcoming upcoming guests on the website. Find us there if you're listening, or join our Slack channel. Uh, hit us up on Twitter, whatever. I mean, we're we're all around, and we all love to talk about this stuff. So, thanks again. Thanks everyone, and thanks Stefan. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. Bye bye.